Welcome to Reverb, everyone. I'm Calvin Pollock. And I'm Alex Helberg. And I'm Sophie Wadzak. So it's been a while for us here. Uh, it's almost the end of January, and uh, here at Reverb, we wanted to check back in with a just a light, fun uh, re- rejoinder episode. Oh, always light and fun. I love these. Uh, so for those who have never uh, heard this style of episode, rejoinder is when we basically we find hot takes out there on the internet um, about topics that we're interested in, topics related to politics, culture, and language and action. And we read those hot takes and react to them and pick them apart and basically provide an alternative perspective on their ideas. We're heating up the fire, getting ready to roast this uh, roast this duck uh, for the... Uh, for the <laughs> it feels apropos to just be talking about roasting and, you know, hot, hot takes yeah, in this cold season. Yeah, exactly. It's we freezing really need, in here. Yeah, we really <laughs> need to warm things up. Yeah. So uh, We need more hot takes. So I have taken the liberty of choosing some articles for us today. And just to set the groundwork, so the president tried to start a war with Iran about a month ago. Our president? Our president, Donald Trump. I don't know if you remember this. It doesn't sound like something he would say. That sounds at least like three, four news cycles ago. Yeah, no, it feels like still a thing. It's bizarre. It feels like ancient history, but this was, uh, you know, shortly after the new year. Oh, Uh, that's right. And so Donald Trump ordered his military to assassinate a high-ranking Iranian official, Qasem Soleimani. And, uh, this was very terrifying. Uh, it filled me with a lot of anxiety and dread for the state of the world, uh, for the U.S. foreign policy, for um, domestic politics. Uh, it, it just seemed like things were going to go very, very badly. Uh, and now things seem to have calmed down. But just to put this in context, the U.S. was in a Cold War with the Soviet Union for many, many decades, and we never assassinated a high-ranking official. So, you know, and we're not in a declared war with Iran. So this was like a super uh, aggressive, unprecedented action. Long story short, this assassination happened shortly after the new year. So what I have for you two today is a couple responses um, to this assassination. And, and what I want you to think about as I, as I read some excerpts from these is how is the rhetoric on display here implicated in both the politics that produced this assassination and may produce you know, future actions like this? So let's just think about what's going on rhetorically here uh, that may be uh, leading to future violence. One last thing before we before we go on that I think is important to to note, and I and I guess I mean I I think I'm speaking for all of us, but at least for myself, um, we're not trying to resuscitate the legacy of Qasem Soleimani when we're when we're talking about all this because there's no like. There is evidence to suggest that he committed atrocities, you know, across the Middle East, like any general. Like, that's the that's the that's the thing we are. It's important to contextualize the way that we're analyzing. This is not as a sort of like, actually, Iran is great and they've never done anything wrong. It's more of like, let's take a look at what this specific communication is being done to try and convince the American public that war with Iran is justified. Yeah. And and we have to realize that this assassination was an act of war. It's it's not the precursor to war. I mean, this was a an act of war. So 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 this is a retroactive justification of an attack. You know, imagine any of this being written about an American official or an American general. Okay, so let's start things off real light, 
from uh, one of our favorite sources, CNN. Ooh, this is CNN. CNN opinion section. Uh, this oh. is from Peter Bergen, CNN national security analyst. The title, The Killing of Iran's General Soleimani is Hugely Significant. Ah, well, so let's... starting on a, a pretty neutral tone, I guess. It's like, I'd, <laughs> I'd, in, in conclusion, Iran is a land of contrasts. <laughs> All right. The significance of Thursday's U.S. strike against Qasem Soleimani cannot be overstated because he ran Iran's military operations across the Middle East. Iraqi State TV reported Thursday that Soleimani was killed by rockets hitting his vehicle near Baghdad International Airport. The Pentagon then confirmed it was an American strike ordered by President Donald Trump that killed Soleimani. Here is how General Joseph Votel, the then commander of U.S. Central Command, explained Soleimani's role in 2018. Wherever you see Iranian activity, you see Qasem Soleimani. Whether it is in Syria, whether it is in Iraq, whether it is in Yemen, he is there, and it is the Quds Force, the organization which he leads, that I think is the principal threat as we look at this and the principal ones that are stoking this destabilizing activity. During the past decade, Iran has conducted proxy wars across the Middle East, in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen. Uh, and sorry, just, just un unlike any other country we know that has been conducting proxy wars in the Middle East, uh, in literally almost every country <laughs> over there, I can't really think of that. That's pretty unprecedented. Yeah. Honestly, that, that sounds like there. The, I've never heard of a country doing that before that's kind of amazing they're the only ones who do that yeah being sarcastic by the way the u.s is doing that so just just for context um we are absolutely doing that in a much worse way over over in many countries in the middle east right so they've been conducting proxy wars uh they also control much of lebanon through iran's proxy force there hezbollah Soleimani was in charge of all of these operations. Soleimani also oversaw operations against U.S. servicemen in Iraq by Shia militias in which hundreds of American servicemen were killed following the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. While eager to wind down U.S. wars in the Middle East, President Trump has proven willing to respond militarily when American lives are at risk. Uh, can we can we stop there for a second? Because I think sure. that we we have our our presupposition alarm is is going off right now a little bit. I think, and maybe we can talk about that. Like, could you read the very first clause of that that last sentence? Sure. While eager to wind down U.S. wars in the Middle East. Okay, yep, yeah, so we're talking about President Trump is eager to wind down wars in the Middle East. I mean, yeah. so that's a contestable claim, I think, that we can point to there. I mean, rhetorically at least. It's what he said on the campaign trail. Right. Right, he campaigned on being somebody who wanted to pull out of all these other conflicts, but I don't know that it's, I don't know if that's how I would characterize uh, an, un an unauthorized assassination, right? That right. doesn't seem, I don't well, know. And, and also just the fact that he's continued the ongoing drone warfare in the Middle East, that has not subsided uh, at all. So, I mean, I think that there's what we, I mean, it's, it's there's a lot prepackaged in that little presupposition there, which is what we consider to be a war or an act of war, um, what we consider to be an escalation versus a de-escalation or, you know, like not having winding down winding versus, down winding, versus up. winding up, like not having like pulling out troops, but still continuing drone warfare. I think, you know, we there, we could pick nits about whether or not that is a true de-escalation. But and as you pointed out, Sophie, like, you know, that's what he said on the campaign trail. But it's kind of odd to use Donald Trump as your source for, for what Donald Trump <laughs> wants to do and 
thinks and does. The man, the, the most consistent man. Folks, you've never seen someone more consistent. But let's get back to, so so that's the presupposition. And But don't ignore the main clause here. So the main clause, President Trump has proven willing to respond militarily when American lives are at risk. Oh, boy. So that right there is assuming that every time he's responded militarily, American lives have have been at risk well and the thing that's jumping to mind for me right now was the i believe i can't even remember because this is already buried so many news cycles ago the uh the rocket strikes um i think that was on was that also on like an iranian air base or something like that the one where the, the media kind of responded with the oh look at these beautiful rockets you know shooting up into the air um that was in syria that was in syria yeah. that's right yeah that yeah. was so, two years ago in right. syria yep and so but i feel like a, a similar justification was trotted out in that particular instance which was you know well this is our our noble president is willing to stand up to you know even though he said that he was going to de-escalate like a wimp uh he's still willing to yeah so many of the warfare that happens in the middle east is sort of packaged in I don't know, presented to the American public like it's to keep you safe, as yes. if there is this imminent threat that like we're all about to die at the hands of somebody in the Middle East unless we're there spending trillions of dollars defending ourselves, which is bogus. Like the whole that whole thing is bogus. Um, but it's not surprising to see it brought out here as a justification. It's also, I think, this sort of perfectly unfalsifiable claim that you can say where it's like, well, we have, you know, high up intelligence sources. And hopefully I'm not predicting too much more of what's coming in this article. But I mean, the the thing about war propaganda is the genres get so, uh, so quickly predictable that you can basically predict that they're going to trot things out like high level, you know, members of the intelligence community have given us good evidence to say that there were attacks that were going to be carried out on U.S. embassies or U.S. military bases. And that serves as the sort of, you know, presupposed justification for uh, any sort of uh, provocative act that the U.S. ends up doing. Well, I think that it's reliable, like it's predictable because it's they're tried and true. Like, no, it will work to convince people. Yes. So you see the same tricks being played over and over and over again, because, again, like you can't falsify it. You yep. can't verify. We, d we don't know people in the intent. Yeah. I don't know anybody with that level of intelligence. So it's, I can't point to somebody who would say yes or no about it. Exactly. It, for a lot of people, I'm sure in America feels right and it yeah. sounds good to them. And that's as far as it goes, I guess. Yeah. It's Nobody wants to be unsafe, but the question is whether truly American lives are at stake, which most people can never really know. And it's dependent totally on whether you trust the authority or the source that it's coming from. Yeah, so so source uh, reported speech is a, is a big part of this. So uh, another important feature that you're going to see in this and and the the next examples is narrative. So so focusing on the narrative here, the wild card now is how will the Iranians react? In recent months, they have carried out strikes that seemed designed to harass the United States and her allies, but not to provoke an all-out shooting war. In June, the Iranians shot down an American surveillance drone. At first, military action seemed probable, but Trump pulled back airstrikes on Iranian targets, saying it wasn't a proportionate response to the unmanned drone that was brought down. Three months later, a barrage of missiles and drones targeted two of the world's most important oil facilities in Saudi Arabia. 
President Trump then tweeted that the United States was locked and loaded, depending on verification of who was behind the attacks. You love to hear your president say the phrase locked and loaded. Just like, you know, I love it when my president acts like an action movie here. He's like, we're locked and loaded. We're ready to go. Yep. Yet, when the U.S. administration credibly blamed Iran for the attacks, Trump, it turned out, didn't want to get embroiled in another war in the Middle East and did not authorize a military operation in response to an attack on a close ally. But just as he did in October when he authorized a risky operation in Syria to capture or kill the leader of ISIS, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, Trump approved the strike to kill Soleimani, who has the blood of many Americans on his hands. Last line in the article. Thursday's strike against Soleimani suggests that President Trump is increasingly confident in his use of American military power. Wow. That sounds like it could have come from a White House press release and not from... This is always so funny to me when you, when you hear people describe CNN as like this, you know, very liberally, you know, like leftist slanted news source when it's sort of like they will they will go to bat for pretty much... <laughs> it's it, This is clear evidence that... Yeah, exactly. They'll they'll go to bat for like I mean, especially when it comes to military actions, right? I mean, this was you know CNN played as big a role as anybody in you know stoking the fuel of the uh, of the Iraq War um, of you know all all like any conflict like they I I mean we can talk about the you know material reasons why they might want to do that because you know because war reporting tends to get more ratings um, like that's kind of the most you know cynical but also probably kind of true take on this um you know a lot of uh broadcast journalists from you know cnn all the way to like nbc are tied very closely with weapons contractors uh you know nbc for instance is owned by general electric which is one of the biggest ones so i mean they have the their rationale for like trotting this kind of stuff out but it's kind of amazing to see it just laid bare in a, a news outlet that by all other counts is like so you know like you know willing to be uh performatively critical of the president all of a sudden when it comes to you know when it comes to american military might uh this seems to be a party line that they are not willing to uh cross here yeah no i mean trump like loves to demonize cnn he never shuts up about how cnn is so harsh with him so unfair to him he beat and the like, crap out of him at that wwe uh <laughs> at that event he just you know was pounding pounding on him uh they, he publicized the gif it was yeah all... we'll have to embed that gif here in the in the, the post for this episode but I mean, the thesis of that piece is effectively, good job, Donald Trump. Keep going. You're confident now in your use of the military. Keep going. Well, I wonder, I mean, too, I think that because CNN is attacked by Trump and by the right as being, you know, having a bias against them, that I feel like maybe it's that they they feel obligated every now and again to do like a pro-Trump or like a piece that's favorable to him to be like, well, no, we're not. We're not always critical. Sometimes we say it's good. And what better time to jump in and be like, oh, yeah, exactly, both sides. But it seems it's interesting that this is, you know, maybe Trump is terrible and we hate him at CNN, but we can all agree about this being a good use of resource or this being a smart thing to do. Maybe because what else are they going to agree with him on for those pieces that they can point to to show that we're not always critical of Trump? But 
Yeah, just the assumption that like this is good. It's yeah. fine and good. It, it's one of those situations where it feels like you can have you can have that cake and eat it too, right? You can say that you're a, you know, bipartisan, fair minded news network because look, we don't disagree with him on everything. Look at the look at all the wars he tried to start that we actively encouraged. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, I, I just find it very strange. Like what why did they run this? What what did this accomplish? I mean, it it feels like I I don't know if I noticed a ton of reported speech in here, but but always when we're talking about war propaganda, it always feels like some of these lines are fed from somewhere. I mean, I don't know what Peter Bergen's history is. Well, so so you're going to notice a pattern with the with the pieces I've selected here. So Peter Bergen is CNN's national security analyst. He's a vice president at New America, which is a think tank, and he's a professor of practice at Arizona State University. Oh, ASU. Yeah. Big party. So, a professor of practice in what? I don't know. Doesn't say but he's about. an academic. He's an know. academic and he's in the think tank world. Um, so he must and, know what he's talking about. Well, <laughs> I mean, he he may have a certain interest in putting a certain kind of argument out there. Um, and so you're going to notice that that's a pattern with, with uh, the pieces I've chosen here. Um, so the second piece. So this was in Foreign Policy magazine. Um, it's, foreign Policy is, is on the news shelves. Um, but yeah, I would say it's like a centrist foreign policy magazine. So here's the title of this one. And this is by Kazra Arabi. Suleimani's killing could change the Middle East for the better. Subtitle, in recent years, high-profile assassinations have been more political theater than practically important. This one could be different if followed up with the right strategy. Um, so, and this one, I would say, is very much focused on constructing the enemy of Soleimani. Who was Soleimani? So I'll just read a little bit from this one. So from the killing of al-Qaeda head Osama bin Laden to the death of Islamic State leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, Assassinations of high-profile U.S. enemies have been hugely symbolic in recent years. Their practical importance, though, has often been overstated. But the strike that killed Qasem Soleimani is different. It has the potential to change the Middle East in fundamental ways, and if followed through with the right strategy, for the better. To understand why, it is important to acknowledge that Soleimani was no ordinary Iranian general. He was the standard-bearer for the Iranian regime's violent and extremist ideology someone who sought to turn Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini's Islamist utopian dream into reality. From the moment Iran's clerical establishment seized control of the Iranian People's Revolution in 1979, the Ayatollahs set their sights on exporting their militant brand of Islamism to other countries in the Middle East. Their grand ambition was to create a pan-Shiite state centered on Khomeini as the supreme authority of not just Iran, but of all Muslims a role enshrined in the constitution of the Islamic Republic to this very day. Wow. That's a, I mean, yeah, there's, there's a lot going on just so far. I didn't mean to interrupt in the middle of that, but like, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's, it's particularly fascinating, assuming that, you know, like foreign policy is kind of coming at this from an American perspective. When we're talking about the Iranian revolution <laughs> in 1979, hmm, up until 79, from like the early fifties until 79, there was a U.S. backed Shah. The Iranian Revolution replaced the Shah. So, but I think what you're getting at is that they are like particularly associating Soleimani with the Iranian Revolution, which the U.S. has been pissed off about since 1979, um, because it got rid of our favorite guy who we put in there because they wanted to nationalize their oil reserves. Um, 
and we'll we'll include some links for context on that if anyone wants to read up. So I'll I'll go on. So to achieve this, Khomeini's followers came up with the idea of creating the Quds Force. This is the force that Soleimani was the commander of. An Islamic army dedicated to exporting the revolution and liberating Palestine through the destruction of Israel. But the Quds Force would only come to real prominence when the son of peasant with blind loyalty to Khomeini's successor, Ayatollah Ali Khomeini, assumed its leadership in 1998. That person was Suleimani, an embodiment of Iran's state-sanctioned Shiite Islamist ideology. Mm. So a lot of association, uh, continued association of Suleimani with, like in particular, the Islamist revolution of 79 and the, <laughs> the that sort of like continual doubling down on, you know, like, yeah, like the current Iranian regime as as sort of like fundamentally an American enemy. I also think that the language of he was an, an embodiment. That's what I was going to say. Like, it's all like he is the personification of all these terrible things. So we had them like it makes it. I mean, can anybody be the embodiment truly of any one thing? Who knows? And I obviously didn't know him personally, but it just seems like a, a pretty quick and easy way to be like, yeah, he's, all that stuff I just said, that was him. He's the quintessence of evil. And by killing him, we've gotten rid of evil. Well, and this is this I think is particularly fascinating about what separates this assassination rhetorically from other assassinations uh, that the U.S. has carried out, like you know, in terms of like Middle East uh, warfare. Most Americans, I think, probably didn't know the name Qasem Soleimani before the before January third, twenty twenty. Whereas, you know, at least a few people who are who have been paying attention know the name Abu Bakr al Baghdadi. Um, everybody, everybody knew the name of Osama bin Laden. There's been much more of a sort of rhetorical backdrop of like constructing the enemy. Whereas this feels this yeah, it's retroactive and it feels very hastily constructed too. Like there's no well, and it's 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 almost like mutual friends. Like, you know, we're we're being told about his social network so that we will so that we'll hate him. Oh yeah, you share ten mutuals. Saddam Hussein's on there. Osama bin yeah. Laden. And I'm um, hoping that'll like carry the weight of like demonizing him. I like yes. too how just the very beginning of this. Um, what did it say? Like most most of these assassinations have been like political theater, but this one might not be. If which a means like okay, well it was, but depending on how it's followed up, then maybe it won't be. But that in itself is sort of admitting that like on itself without a, you know without any other follow up like again it was just sort of a performative thing but i it reminded me of um you guys know on like arrested development where tobias is like talking about trying to save his marriage with lindsay and he's like what you know this never works but it might work for us <laughs> like well, did it work for those people <laughs> no it never does i mean these people somehow delude themselves into thinking it might but <laughs> but it might work for us that's saying like this is it always this is always a silly you know thing it doesn't work but yeah. this time let, let me tell you about all these other leaders that we've killed that have not solved the problem um, but this one and in hearing all of those examples that will convince me that this time this is the one that will somehow be different like it doesn't yeah. it's not very persuasive to me okay so I'll just go on I have a few more excerpts from this article so this is continuing to characterize Soleimani's career and building up this image of him so in Iraq in 2003 for example following the fall of Ba'athist dictator Saddam Hussein Soleimani and his associates worked tirelessly to recruit radicalize and organize young Shiite men into militias 
loyal not to the Iraqi state, but to Iran's supreme leader. Equipped with rockets and roadside bombs, they would kill hundreds and injure thousands of British and American troops. Through the militias, the Iranian general was also able to begin cultivating a command and control relationship over Iraq. Tehran's sectarian agenda would bring Iraq to the brink of civil war and would later contribute to the rise of the Islamic State in 2014. So it's all his fault. Pretty hefty leap that is missing a lot of things in between about the what created the sort of power vacuum in particular parts of the Middle I East. I mean, so the Ba'athist dictator of Saddam Hussein just kind of falls. That's that's constructed as a as a nominalization. The fall of Ba'athist dictator Saddam Hussein. How'd that happen? Who knows how he even came to power in the first place either. That's, you know, I mean, who yeah, what's what's to say that yeah, no, who do, yeah, uh, the, US, the U.S. played a big role in that, sorry, <laughs> just to be clear, yeah, just have to insert that, like, just for people who, because that's, you know, it's pretty heavy sarcasm. Uh, no, no, yeah, to be clear, in the 1980s, during the Iran-Iraq war, the U.S. was backing Saddam Hussein against Iran, uh, then we turned around in the 1991 Gulf War to attack Saddam Hussein, and then we had the sequel to that in 2003, but this is something that is hardly ever mentioned in these articles that a big reason Qasem Soleimani is a national hero in Iran is because he was a really important part of the Iran, that, the Iran, Iran Iraq war. war. Yes. Yeah. yeah. In the eighties. Um, almost never mentioned. Okay. So I'll go on. Despite Soleimani's reputation as the man who helped to defeat the Islamic state, in reality, the rise of the anti-Shiite militant group in Syria and Iraq was a godsend for the Iranian regime. It enabled Tehran to justify its deep-rooted involvement abroad and gave a veneer of religious justification to the bloodshed it had caused. Overnight, the IRGC and its Shiite foreign fighters, who had suppressed Sunni anti-Assad demonstrators, became defenders of the holy Shiite shrines from the threat of the Islamic State. And Soleimani took the form of a messianic warrior akin to a modern-day Imam Hussein, the third divinely ordered infallible Shiite Imam, who rose against the Umayyad Caliphate in AD 680 and was martyred in his quest to stand up for Shiite Islam. What a relatable analogy. Yeah, I was going to say, well, this person is saying things from history, so, I mean, that sounds that sounds right. <laughs> sounds legit. I'm definitely not going to check any of these sources uh, because, yeah, I mean, that was a pretty clear-cut uh, clear uh, tour through a history that is uh, pretty simple. <laughs> well, you, it does seem like if we're, I don't know. I mean, that went pretty far back. For, for this particular... Yeah, we're going way right? back. Right? Like, is this an op-ed? I mean, like- we were just talking about, like, the 80s. Uh, they're, they're taking us back to the 680s. Yes. <laughs> so. Yeah. That, you... I, I don't know. I just, it's like the sort of the premise of this article seems to be, or the purpose is like, this guy was big. This guy was really part of it. At every turn, everywhere you look, right? Was this, was it this article that said, like, everywhere you look, you see him as part of... But yeah. like, like you said, Calvin, I've never heard of him before or that and i've been listening to the news for a while and so again it just seems sort of this like yeah this and again i'm not trying to say that like there was nothing wrong with him but it does sort of seem like a this like scramble to be like here's why this is like a really big deal and this was really important and it was i i don't know it seems like a little it reads a little desperate to me as well as the invocation of all that like religious islamic history is, right like yeah it, 
I, I don't know. And, and you have to think about how that functions being directed at an American audience, which has right. which has certain Islamophobic tendencies. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. I can't expect most Americans probably to even probably have the political will to understand or to try and understand the sectarian religious conflicts that have been, you know, roiling for centuries in the Middle East. But also, I mean, so so this... Forgive me if I if the clarification that I'm looking for here is this person saying that that Iran was actually pretty stoked about the uh, about the, the Islamic about state. the rise of okay that's like patently false though right like I mean they're supporting the Syrian government on the on that side of the Syrian right civil no war. no and 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 Iran has been played a major role in fighting ISIS uh, like even at times alongside the U.S. That's what makes it so strategically. Uh, incoherent that the U.S. is like increasing tensions with Iran at the same time as Trump wants to seem tough on ISIS. Right. Uh, That's what happens when you fight both sides of a proxy war. What are you gonna? What do you expect? <laughs> right. Okay. So coming to the the uh, conclusion of this piece here. So killing Soleimani was a high risk gamble by the United States that marks a genuinely significant moment in the effort to clamp down on Iranian expansionism. Sorry, it was a high-risk gamble by who? By whom? By the U.S. Oh, by oh. the whole, all of the U.S. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to, to halt Iranian expansion in the <laughs> Iranian expansionism. But it must be accompanied by a comprehensive strategy in order to be truly successful. As a first step, Europe and the United States will need to unite around the common cause of containing Iran. If they do not, when Iran responds, and it will, There is a danger that the two will only divide further, with Europe blaming Trump for Iran's actions, not the Iranian regime itself, which is exactly what Tehran's clerical establishment wants. The British government has struck the right tone in explicitly blaming the rise in tensions on Soleimani and the Iranian regime's, quote, menacing, destabilizing activities. Well, if the Brits say it. Yeah, they're really reliable these days on... Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. an extremely normal country yeah, yeah. these Definitely. days. Nothing weird going on there. Um, other European leaders must follow suit. Meanwhile, Soleimani is gone, but the IRGC still stands. Tehran will, of course, try to use what it calls Soleimani's martyrdom as a way to galvanize its network of foreign fighters across the Middle East and radicalize them further. That makes it all the more important for Europe and the U.S. to work collectively with regional partners to find ways of further constraining activities of the IRGC and its militias. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, okay, wait. And then here's the very end. Above all else, the West needs to prioritize the interests of the people of the region who are the real victims of the Iranian regime's bloodlust and militancy. The stakes could not be higher, but the end of Soleimani's reign of ter- terror can and should be treated as a positive opportunity to bring change to the Middle East. Well-known defenders of the people of the Middle East, the West. Um, that's just, that. that is just, like, that makes me so angry. <laughs> like, gen- like, genuinely pissed about the just the, Aren't these just, episodes fun folks oh, great i'm so glad that i'm on the receiving end of these articles now i i get now the turmoil that i've put all of you through in the last several um yeah no i mean so obviously you have this sort of like bogus east-west construction of like oh yes the civilized west must come in and it feels really racist it yeah. feels really racist like when you boil it down to like east versus west in yeah. those like very broad strokes like yeah just the yeah feels racist yeah. to me well and also just the the 
presumption that Europe and the U.S., everything that we consider a part of, like, the West, quote-unquote, has a duty to protect civilians in the um uh in the middle east the the idea that they have ever done that uh i think is is extremely questionable the idea that that's ever been part of their mo and any any imperialist narrative is not complete without the sort of like uh we are going to rescue the people from the when when really like they don't no they don't give a shit about those people like they're they're obviously not i mean you look how many civilians have died since we've been in the middle east like obviously that's not hundreds of thousands right Hundreds of thousands of people. So, like, it's not, that's not, it's when it's convenient to say, like, oh, well, think about. And, I mean, so the Iraqi parliament has voted since this strike to expel all U.S. Yes. troops from the country. Sounds like the people are not really in favor of us getting more involved. Yeah, I mean, that Iraqi parliament was elected by the people. Like, there's no, there's no uh, accusations of, you know, uh, of them speaking out of turn. Like, this is Jing, and, and the there have been millions of people in the streets calling for this in Iraq. Um, but we know better. But we know what the interests... And I also just wanted to highlight the sort of neoliberal language of a positive opportunity to bring change to the Middle ah, East. Innovation! Striving for, for be- better living through drone strikes. Yeah, we have opportunities, folks. we got to seize these opportunities. And it's like... This has been one nonstop um, bloodletting. It's just it's for twenty years. Will you go back to the part the the stakes could not be higher? Who were they? Were they? It just says the stakes could not be higher. Be uh, higher. But before that, they say above all else, the West needs to prioritize the interests of the people of the region, sure. who are the real victims the real of the victims. Iranian regime's bloodlust and militancy. The stakes could not be higher. Well, that's again, I feel like the the fact that you even need to mention that in an article you know is a reminder that like none of this really if you're unless you're in the armed forces like if you're an american person walking around like none of this is real for you unless you want it to be like you don't have to think about this stuff unless you choose to engage with it and so like remember there's people dying like oh yeah there's people dying like it it, it just like the idea that we're over there we're like fucking up people's lives because we think it's the best, even though, like you said, like the people don't want us there and they actually want us to leave and they're telling us pretty clearly, like, get out of, get out of here. But we need to think about the people who somehow aren't those people who said no, they wanted us to leave. not like, those people, different people. Yeah, different, yeah, quote unquote. I, it's just, yeah. No, I mean, this is always kind of like, this is why I feel like th- it's so important to analyze war propaganda like this critically is because, like you said, Sophie, I think it's true that like most people in the U.S., like just casual, you know, observers of world events or, you know, people who take in the mainstream press don't often have to think about this stuff because it's not. But, you know, war war discourse in America has never really been like really real, except for anybody who maybe has like seen armed conflict. Right. Like you don't know what that's like for people who are who have to live through, you know, uh, uh, having to worry about drones flying overhead every day or having to worry about the occupation of your hometowns. and Which province. is why all these like in like in the previous article when it's like, oh, we need to protect ourselves. Like we're yeah. not this yeah. isn't protecting ourselves. Right. Like yeah. it's not protecting the American people. I, I just it's like that's not again, like we're, we're bringing up like the civilians on either side yeah. whenever it's convenient to like support an argument but that's obviously not what's underlying motivations for any of this so it's like kind of hard to swallow yes no for sure so i do want to point out here so the author of that piece 
Kazra Arabi is an analyst at the Tony Blair Institute for for Global Change. Ah, well-known peacemaker, <laughs> Tony Blair. Is that why he was sh- shouting out to to England and perhaps uh, uh, shout out to Tony Blair um, shout out to uh, uh, all of the Brits doing great work he- it's just it's a funny time to be like let's look to the Brits to guide our foreign policy uh, our like, wise okay. statecraft right they're doing um, really well with that on their own I also just think I mean the construction of this job bio he, uh, they're an analyst at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change he focuses on Iran, its regional role and foreign policy, and Shiite Islamist ideology. He focuses on that. Um, beyond that, he just analyzes it. He calls the balls. He calls the strikes. Uh, he produces, you know, sabermetric analyses of the heavy hitters in the region, and uh, and we all benefit from that. Foreign policy is baseball. That's the that's the end of it. So I want to turn now to uh, just one more um, piece uh, along these lines. I'm just going to read a few hits from it. So this was in Time magazine, and this was from, let's see here, uh, Kareem Sajapur, um, who is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. So get ready for a very peace-oriented Piece yes, here. of course. Andrew Carnegie. Rather than a change-oriented. Wasn't the previous one, it was the Institute for Change. Yeah, the Institute for Change. And now we're trying to get peace to happen. Yeah. Um, so let's see if, if the rhetoric here is, is oriented towards that. So we're starting off, we're taking it a little bit back to just to, just to get us a, a little bit more context for who Soleimani was. So like young men from poor families throughout the world, Soleimani achieved upward mobility by joining the military. The Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps was set up to supersede a national army Khomeini, the the Ayatollah, did not trust, and Soleimani's cut his teeth as a soldier by helping to ruthlessly crush a rebellion of Kurds in northwest Iran, an estimated 10,000 of whom were killed. In 1981, he was among hundreds of thousands dispatched to counter the invasion of Iran by Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein. Soleimani served mostly on the front line, distinguishing himself as a leader then went on to confront drug traffickers in Kerman, the Taliban in neighboring Afghanistan, and reportedly anti-government protests inside Iran. But Soleimani came into his own after the attacks of 9-11 and the U.S. invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, which flank Iran. Soleimani was tasked with sabotaging the American effort in Iraq. He did this initially by by unleashing al-Qaeda members detained in Iran after fleeing Afghanistan, including several members of the bin Laden family and Jordanian radical Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, and allowing them to inflame Iraq. Then he trained Iraqi Shiite militias and provided them extraordinarily lethal roadside booby traps that could penetrate any U.S. armor. Man, this guy really did a lot of things. It's like a flair for the <laughs> for the dramatic this writer has. There's a lot of, like, cut his teeth, and there's just a lot of, like, very colorful verbs. It's, am- it's amazing. He did things. Yeah, it's, he did it's, things. He did a lot of things. It's just amazing that we haven't heard about this guy, despite the fact that he apparently unleashed bin Laden um, and invented roadside bombs. I- he was kind of like f- the Forrest Gump of, of Middle, yeah. e- Middle Eastern politics. He just showed up in every major every world event. Every historically significant moment. The most important person you've never heard of until now. So how did the man live to 62? A former senior U.S. intelligence official on Iran told me that when previous administrations discussed assassinating Soleimani, two questions were usually contemplated. 
Does he deserve to die? And is it worth the potential risks? The answer to the first question tended to be affirmative. The answer to the second was always inconclusive. So this piece, I, I, you know, this is from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. So this piece, I think, is, is slightly more oriented to critiquing this. But notice the way that they're critiquing it. They're critiquing it on the basis of strategy, uh, cost benefit, risk analysis. Well, yeah, that's that's exactly the that that's why it seems a little bit grotesque upon first listen because we're talking about assassinating, you know, I mean, obviously extrajudicially assassinating another world leader. Um, that and and you're talking about it as like you're you're means testing the decision. <laughs> like it's not a matter of like. Yeah, no, it's 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 just a matter of like, well, can we afford to do this right now? Will our stock prices go down if we do? That's kind of disgusting. Yeah, but the odd thing is that as this piece goes along, it becomes clear that this author has been disappointed in Trump for for not uh spilling more blood basically. Yeah, so 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 let's listen here. American blood had emerged as Trump's red line in dealing with Iran. A U.S. death presumably would require a lethal military reply from a president who had entered the spiral of escalation quite late, at the point where the circles narrow and everything moves very fast. <laughs> this guy should have been a—he should have been a novelist, right? Like metaphors that are happening here: the spiral of escalation as we ascend and things start moving faster. It's like you're getting caught up in a tornado. Yeah, it is a better read than the previous one. Yeah, that metaphor though is really kind of fascinating, where you are figuring a uh, figuring you know the escalation of military conflict as a force of nature. Uh, it's a it's a spiral that sort of like gets that out of nobody's con- like, yep, control. Yep, once you once you get in it, it's hard Just to get out. And, when yep. you've entered it, which I mean, you know, if that is true from the position of the president, that maybe says a little bit more about the intractability of the military industrial complex and the processes that it sort of, uh, the, the, the skids that it greases in the world. The automatic functioning of, a, of American foreign policy. So continuing to describe that, the author goes on, for seven months, the normally bellicose U.S. president had declined to answer mounting attacks by Iran with reciprocal U.S. military action. We had nobody in the drone, Trump said, after Iran shot down a massive aircraft in June. It would have made a big difference. Can, can we just, because this is the second time that drone has come up. Um, why was it in Iranian airspace in the first place? That's a sovereign country. <laughs> um, I'm, sure, I'm sure it was just delivering packages for Amazon. I think it was kind of, yeah, probably doing good things. Um, holes blasted in oil tankers and an extraordinarily bold air assault on Saudi Arabia's main oil facilities were received as Iran's response to the economic sanctions Trump had imposed. After unilaterally withdrawing from the international agreement that had arrested Iran's nuclear programs, that sentence is just is is just needs to be broken up, restructured. There's a lot, there's a lot of style issues there, but we'll go on. If we cannot sell oil, Tehran was saying, no one else should be able to either. Tehran was saying, oh god, love reporting speech to a, a city. Yeah. That's so great. Stingy city. Yeah, 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 stingy yeah. city. That sounds that has sort of a similar manner of speech as Trump. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. The commander-in-chief answered every attack with an eagerness to sit down and talk, just as he had with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. Then, on December 27th, one of the militias handled by Soleimani killed an American contractor in a rocket barrage on a U.S. base in Iraq. Trump finally retaliated in kind, ordering U.S. warplanes to strike the militia two days later, killing 25. Oh, 
My, well, yeah, that sounds that sounds equivalent. <laughs> he finally responded and killed twenty five times as many people. Iran responded by sending unarmed militiamen to swarm the U.S. embassy in Baghdad, where they burned a reception center. While Tehran has a long history of looting embassies, what infuriated Trump was comparisons with the overrunning by Libyan militants in 2012 of the consular office in Benghazi. Oh, that sounds like something Trump definitely can wrap his head around. Where's our Where's our ambassador Stevens for for? <laughs> Where the death of the U.S. ambassador became an obsession for some in the GOP, including Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. The anti-Benghazi, Trump tweeted. When military advisors brought a menu of options to answer for the embassy vandalism, Trump stunned them by picking the killing of Soleimani. He later said the general was planning an imminent strike on U.S. interests, but has not elaborated. So that... That narrative there, I think, is fascinating. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I know that this is not this is not a novel critique, but that this is a. Tr- I wanted to point it out because it came up the trotting out of the generals, the the big beautiful generals. They presented him with all these options out on the table, and they were, and you know, they they put the Soleimani killing one in there because they oh well, we wanted him to choose a less extreme, you know, what the the less extreme card on the table. But he, well, you know, he he did it. We didn't want him to, but he but he just went and did it so we gave it to him as an option but he we didn't want, like, we didn't really want him to do it i also it. think it's kind of gross how i've i've heard this in multiple articles and and sort of talking points about this that it was like a menu of options That's why do just, they always use why do they always use that metaphor i menu? think i'll have the targeted assassination with a side of uh earl gray it does sort of invoke this like idea of like people in a room with like a bunch of like buttons to push that automatically are like it doesn't again it's like you know we're removed from it and the idea that it's like well choose choose what to do and you choose whatever you want to like makes it all seem kind of arbitrary it's a kind of like uh economistic uh consumerist rhetoric uh similar to like a positive opportunity in the middle east we got a menu of options here it's just yeah as though this isn't like killing uh, and maiming right. and destabilizing countries. Yeah, and- no, that that's serious. Like, I mean, if there's no there's no better representation, I think, of these sort of like distanced, uh, uh, just cruelty of the the way that the U.S. military operates. And I mean, you know, probably a lot of other militaries around the world too. But this particularly, like, just seeing it as like, oh, well, what are we gonna do today? Like, let's choose from our menu of strategic retaliatory responses. And also mentioned like whatever it was that you said had enraged, like what really enraged Trump about it or whatever, like implying that this choice among menu options is fueled by this like rage that he feels, which is not, doesn't spark a lot of confidence in me, right? As like a citizen of the, you know, the world, like this person is enraged and so he's going to choose to do the most extreme thing. Like, cool, good. That's This is why we need to care about executive power no matter who the president is. Because no matter who the president is, if we give them this power to just, in a fit of rage, have a menu of options that they can just pick from, like a McDonald's menu. Um, So anyways, so this piece, um, again, remember, this is from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace here. It ends by talking about the stakes for what would happen if the U.S. is no longer in the Middle East? Are we doing a little future predicting here? Yeah, a little future predicting. So outrage by Iraqi politicians brought calls to expel U.S. forces from the country, where the U.S. has spent more than a trillion dollars and thousands of lives. Expulsion makes no military sense. 
Without U.S. air power and special operators, ISIS would still hold much of Iraq. But after Iraq's parliament passed a non-binding resolution ordering American forces out, the U.S. command in Iraq issued a letter suggesting it was packing its bags. You remember this? There was like one day that, so this letter came out like on official U.S. military letterhead that was apparently going from the U.S. military to the Iraqi government saying that we were going to pull our troops out. But then like 20 minutes later, the military disavowed it and said it was not an official letter sounds like so, things are real real good and normal out in the ground over there who wrote i mean does it do who wrote the letter presumably the acting defense secretary wrote it but uh someone in, in the administration pulled it back so just an extremely terrifying chaotic thing so that, so this author goes on the letter was a mistake but one that gladdened hearts in tehran getting u.s forces out of iraq was after all the mission khamenei gave soleimani his mandate expanded to the equivalent of a four-star general, CIA chief, and secretary of state. The Shiite foreign legion of 50,000 he cultivated projected Iranian power across the Middle East. And if his vocation made it unlikely Soleimani would die a natural death, Khamenei had called him a living martyr, his assassination may prove to be a force multiplier. Sensing that the notion of the U.S. leaving Iraq has now become credible, Iranian leaders are upping the stakes, calling for the expulsion of U.S. forces from the entire Middle East. Fast forward to August 2020. Imagine news from Iran that a dozen U.S. sailors have been detained by the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Navy. Instead of releasing them in a timely fashion, as it has in the past, Iran demands that all American troops first vacate the entire Middle East. An impossible request. Three months from Election Day, how does Trump react? Oh, man. Isn't that just the most horrifying thing you can imagine? Iran, a Middle Eastern country, demanding that all American troops vacate the entire Middle East? I know. Ridiculous. I know. Amazing that they would have the gall to say that to a country that traveled halfway around the world, invested $3 trillion and thousands of our own. I like also how they mention the dollars first yes, and the no, lives no, yeah, second. They, they, they mention it like it'd be a bad, we're, we're not getting a good return on investment for our, for our, all the lives and dollars that we've invested in the Middle East. No, I mean, that's disgusting. Like, I mean, that that's a, that's a totally grotesque frame of reference for talking about, to, you know, like predicting, first of all, a, a hypothetical that you know yeah these like these troops who are like who would they say like sol- soldiers or yeah sa- sailors uh, yeah. i care a lot about these hypothetical sailors now yeah t- i, I yeah. guess it seems like a weird like there's there's plenty of actual information that's real to talk about i don't know why we need to invoke like a right <laughs> but i mean it's also like it, it's doing that kind of it's it's heightening the stakes by saying like what if this happens in you know a couple of months before the election ah what's gonna happen then like i mean they're they're playing off of this you know like worst case scenario or what or trying to construct it as such um which i think is pretty disingenuous at the very least um and well i mean i I think like across all of these pieces, what we're seeing. So there's a few commonalities that that I would point out. Number one, they're all from think tanks that are uh, highly funded um, in D.C., often deeply connected to academia. Very important to point out. These are academics who are doing this kind of policy analysis work, which often gets very sanitized in terms of its stakes. But what we're seeing across these is that if there's any critique of this, it's that it's not bellicose enough. There's not enough war going on or that this was too little war too late. Um, 
there's a kind of strategy critique that maybe uh, we're not sure whether he's going to do the right thing along with this thing that was right, that was good. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, none of them, no, everyone accepts the premise that, like, assassinating Soleimani was a good move. Deserved to die, and we all agreed that he did. And there's also just a consistent idea that taking troops out of the Middle East is Cannot work. is a third rail. Like yeah. Absolutely not. That that is that is unacceptable. That's uh basically the worst possible thing, the worst possible outcome of this. It's not the death, it's not the 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 rise in tensions or the is is the possibility that the Iraqi parliament has voted to uh to get us out that this might embolden Iranians who have been saying they want the US out. The the ultimate threat is that the U.S. will no longer be at war. Like the threat is not from Iranian or Iraqi terrorism. The threat is us no longer right. killing them. Which which I think really helpfully underscores you know what what other places has been called like the ideology of endless war. Like endless war, it has become a sort of like ideological assemblage where and and if you just take it for granted as like well it's always been that way so it must be right, right. that's when it starts to become you know this entrenched ideology that you know is hard to And I think to it's combat. it's a real threat to democracy. Much of that military budget goes to produce propaganda like this. So it becomes a, a self-fulfilling prophecy where the budget is paying for the arguments for the budget just in this vicious cycle and in addition like certainly we're not under the same kind of physical material threat from war as as the victims in the Middle East which makes it incredibly toxic that we, that we talk about this so flippantly but at the same time over time we have seen more and more domestic terror attacks and we know that those terror attacks are largely traceable to US involvement in the Middle East so i i, I think that the idea that you know terror attack that that we are materially and physically safe from these wars is also short-sighted because you know it, it creates instability it creates weapons markets it creates all these kinds of things that that put us under real physical threat um yeah so this was a fun rejoinder oh man i am just really yeah ready to ready to go out into the sunshine and just you know sing you know oh what a beautiful you're gonna be morning. waiting a few months for a sun. oh yeah that's true we do this because we have to yes no no it, we can't not it do it genuinely is and i'm i mean i'm glad we took on this topic for a rejoinder because I, and i think it's yeah like like calvin was saying it it, it you know you feel really awful to be talking about it in kind of like you know or even like making jokes in the midst of any of this because this is a moral nightmare like all all of this is like that like war in general and especially i mean i feel the need to mention this because i know that we have people who listen to this who have family and friends living in the middle east um that the bottom line for this is people's lives are at stake and that and are constantly you know degraded because of you know be uh, because of of just just military belligerence in that part of the world in general and i think it becomes our moral duty to be able to see that beyond the propaganda of of the u.s state and to you know to stand up for human rights um i mean i know that's that's not a perfect framework for putting it in but i mean i think we do have a moral obligation to consider you know what's what those people have what is at stake for those people uh because you know we can sit in a room and talk about it all we want to but 
we are not having to live with the constant threat of getting drone bombed or, you know, getting invaded. But at the same time, this is how that happens. It happens first rhetorically and linguistically and discursively. And so it's important to understand the strategies and the tropes that, that make that happen. Um, all right. Well, hey, we will see you next time on Reverb. Um, do we have any anything to plug? Follow us on Twitter. We are on Twitter at ReverbCast, R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Uh, I am on Twitter at A-J Helberg. That's A-J-H-E-L-B-E-R-G. I'm on Twitter at Calvin Pollock, C-A-L-V-I-N-P-O-L-L-A-K. No, my handle's going to sound silly. I'm on Twitter, too. I do some podcasting of my own. I'm on uh, Twitter as Sweet Baby Child, spelled like it sounds. The best. Listen to the Blurst of oh, Times, yes. and also Sophie's you can follow of Blurst on Twitter, O-F-B-L-U-R-S-T, if you want to hear us talk about uh, sometimes similar issues, current events, uh, politics, but with me and my eight-year-old son. It's a blast. It's so much fun to listen to. It's fantastic. To. Yeah. Um, so if you have kids, if you don't have kids, listen to it because it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, one last thing to uh, really quickly plug. Uh, we are, and I know that we announced this on uh, on Twitter a while ago, but we are, uh, we have officially been accepted uh, for a live show at the 2020 Computers and Writing Conference. Uh, that is going to be coming uh, later in May, uh, I believe May 14th through the 17th. We don't have an exact date or time that we'll be presenting, but uh, at the moment, we'll keep you posted on that. On all of this right now, the plan is uh, 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 well. We won't talk too too openly about it because we're planning some fun things for it. But tentatively, at least, uh, I, Alex, uh, Calvin, and Sophie will all be there. Uh, so look for us there. We look forward to seeing all of you there. Um, keep that on your calendars if you are going to uh, computers and writing. Uh, we are looking forward to it. Yeah, I mean, I have a bunch of great episodes planned for this semester. So stay tuned with us. Uh, we will see you next time. Sounds good. Take care, everybody. Bye. Bye. Our show today was produced by Alex Helberg, Calvin Pollock, and Sophie Wadzak, with editing work by Alex and Calvin. Our co-producer at large is Ben Williams. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.